I'll only be spending one but a very long video on Stalin as this series could take decades. Let's just say that everything wrong with any communist regime from here on out is firmly at the feet of Stalin. From East Germany to North Korea, he is why these nations turned into nightmare police states. Without him, communism and dictatorships would have never been viewed as synonyms in the Western mindset. And it never had to go this way. As we discussed, Lenin wanted Trotsky as his successor, and people say that the killing and imprisonment would have probably matched that of Lenin. But remember that compared to the last Tsar, it was a drop in the bucket, and he had every intention of implementing the original idealistic constitution as soon as they could stabilize the nation and weaken the threat of monarchists and the white army from being a military threat. Stalin stopped that in his tracks. Stalin was raised in a town in the nation of Georgia that literally had a fight club. Men would fight men, women would fight women, and children would fight children. Behind the Bastards did an amazing funny piece on this. Violence was as natural for Stalin as breathing. Of the party leaders you wanted to hand absolute power over to, he was literally the worst person. He started off to study to be a priest, then quit and became a communist party member. He then became a bank robber for the cause and organized the biggest bank heist in Russian history at the time and got away with it using comically large amounts of bombs. He should have stayed a general, not part of the Politburo, with his competence for violence. As Lenin was dying, he was frightened to realize that Stalin was creating cults of personality around him and tried to kill that, but too late. He wanted to be cremated unceremoniously and instead is still interred as one of the most well-preserved lifelike mummies on display still for all to see. Stalin seized power by sidelining Trotsky, who was exiled, who founded the Fourth International to counter Stalin's Third International that the global communist community boycotted because of Stalin's violence. Trotsky spent the rest of his life speaking out against Stalin and his brutality until an NKVD assassin killed him with an ice pickaxe to the face. On an added note, according to some, there's no certainty that Trotsky would have even been general secretary even if Stalin had been kicked out. There were several more people in the party with more influence than him, and by some accounts, he wasn't even very well liked by the Politburo. Stalin immediately changed the election rules, which ended up leading to leaders picking one person for the people to vote for to keep their power entrenched. There were fair and free elections under Lenin. Stalin stopped that. Stalin cranked the cult of personality up to 11, even giving himself the name Stalin, or Man of Steel, and a central focal point for his fans and many other communist leaders followed his lead. Most communist nations mimicked Stalin or were essentially founded by him, Cuba, Vietnam, and Chile being the ones that came to power after Stalin and took a much less heavy-handed approach and avoided that cult of personality. Stalin hit the ground running after that and immediately collectivized the farms and focused on top-down planned economy. However, instead of getting to own and run the farms themselves as a collective, Stalin took the top-down approach and forced them to essentially live like they did under feudalism, just with a state in charge instead of the lords. Of course, he murdered or gulag the kulaks again, people who had a more bird's-eye view of farming experience, so the people's farming experience dried up. And since the people all got the same and there was no incentive to work like there was in the cities, the communes had the exact same problem feudal lords had during that time, leading to lower yields. Famines ensued for his first five-year plan. This is where the propaganda came from, that no matter how much you worked under communism, you'd always get the same amount. This was true only under the agrarian system, which was left over from feudalism, mostly because there was an elitist view that the peasants were kind of stupid and couldn't run things for themselves like they could in the 
cities. Most of us were never taught growing up that in a union under communism, if you made more than your quota, you got to keep the extra money. At that time, science was heavily being crippled. Stalin didn't believe in Darwinian natural selection and viewed it as bourgeois propaganda as it went against the cooperative dogma of communism. Scientists were also mostly bourgeois and were suspect and viewed as indoctrinated. Trofim Lysenko was a son of the proletariat, which suddenly made him a better class now in Russia. He had some agrarian success, discovering a process called vernalization, where when there was a low snowfall, wheat seeds using cold and moisture could be used to sprout them, causing what would have been a crop failure to be a success. Like Stalin, he rejected Mendelian and Darwinian genetics in favor of his own theory, not based in reality. He became a poster boy for the communist ideal scientist, and Stalin drastically gave him more and more power. Stalin believed that they could move science with a force of will and push communist dogma on nature, and if he just ground the Russian people down enough, they could all have so much technology they would be living in a utopia. Lysenkoism caused the Holodomor, or the Ukrainian famine. Stalin actually disliked Ukrainians, and after Makhno and anarchist sympathies, and having the most potential to be independent, Stalin decided to use hunger to adjust their potential to rebel, and purposely starve some of them just using input versus output in grain production. He demanded a certain amount and then redistributed it, with Ukraine the breadbasket of the USSR getting the least of the food. Once he learned about Lysenkoism, he jumped on it. He truly believed that not enough food was going to be no longer the problem, but there would be too much food. He made a rule that everyone had the duty to eat as much as possible, draining all of their stores and reserves because the crop harvest was going to be too much with the new miracle science. Oddly enough, forcing nature to fit into one's dogma failed drastically. Stalin just planned to starve some of the population, or at least weaken them. He never intended for what came next to happen. Crop yields were utterly awful, leading up to as many as 8 million Ukrainians dying, and according to some reports, the government had to put up signs telling people that cannibalism was bad because it was so rampant. China would go on to use an updated version of Lysenkoism that caused the horrible Great Leap Forward we will discuss later. With this criticism of both his policies and restricting voter rights, even Bolsheviks spoke out against him begging him to reinstate some form of democracy. Then he instigated the Great Purge, killing and gulagging people left and right who opposed him. There was such psychological oppression and doublespeak that people he purged near the end of his life thanked him for his abuse, saying they were wrong and deserved it like a person in a codependent relationship. He did institute a funding for anti-fascism in the rest of the world. Fascism is essentially a cult of fear of anything that could be remotely communist or socialist. One of the things people usually aren't told when they see Nazis burning books, and all nodding that book burning is bad, is that most of those books were usually gay or trans research or communist books. Something much of the West happily did too. Spain had a fascist uprising and the loyalist communists and anarchists had a loose alliance fighting them with most of the rest of the world doing nothing to help and most of the funding coming from the USSR. America and Britain were both experiencing a rise in fascist sentiment with America's silver shirt movement and the America First campaign of Charles Lindbergh and Sir Oswald Mosley with his union of British fascists. The anarchists actually were some of the most effective fighters and most productive as they would go on to the front lines in the evening and effectively go to their farms and factories in the daytime. I talk about them in my piece on my review of the book Anarcho-Syndicalism. 
Catalonia from 1936 to 1939 had regions run and owned by anarcho-syndicalism and anarcho-communists and were some of the most effective and everyone viewed themselves as their own boss while at the same time part of the hyper-democratic collective. They are viewed as the longest-running anarchist-run region. Sadly, in return for funding, once they had Franco on the ropes, Stalin required both the Republicans and the Communists to sabotage and turn against the anarchists, just like they had done to Machno, and with that sabotage and fighting, Franco was able to take over Spain, turning it into a fascist dictatorship. In 1939, he signed a non-aggression pact with Hitler, and they both invaded Poland, seizing each half. Surprisingly, this non-aggression pact between the political polar opposites of a communist and fascist dictator did not last, and Hitler invaded two years years later, a year after taking over France and much of the rest of the continent. With much blood and sacrifice, the Soviets did the bulk of the work to defeat the Nazis with the help of US and Britain. Yes, I know, we like to think of ourselves as the heroes of the war, but we waited till the very last minute thanks to the fascist voters pushing for non-aggression until the Japanese stupidly pushed our hand, bombing Pearl Harbor and sinking our fleet as a diversion to grab up many of our other strategic island territories. It was only then that we all rallied around the flag and really started stepping up the war effort, which actually helped us get out of the Great Depression. Near the end of the war, Japan was nearly crippled and Stalin was marching on Manchuria, which would have been a finishing blow to them, as they were out of resources and without Manchuria, they wouldn't have any way to rearm. And Japan was on the brink of giving up. FDR died suddenly and Harry Truman, a rather sheltered senator, who knew pretty much nothing about foreign policy, suddenly became president. Truman only got the VP job because in FDR's fourth election run, the conservative wings of the party blocked Henry Wallace, a very progressive and almost socialist VP from running again, as at that time the president didn't get to pick his own VP. Truman was suddenly hit with a fire hose of information about the war, including the Manhattan Project. He knew pretty much nothing, and the VP was just kind of there, doing little to nothing. It is for this reason that vice presidents now learn pretty much everything the president knows. Truman, being a global know-nothing, ended up having his ear caught by an anti-communist judge who convinced Truman that communism was the next new evil. Because of this, we dropped two nukes on Japan. The story is that it would have saved lives and crushed spirits, making them give up. Yeah, the evidence doesn't pan out. Entire cities had been bombed into the Stone Age by the U.S., worse than either of the nukes. The point was to let the Ruskies know that we had them, in the hope of gaining more leverage when we divided up the world, kicking off the Cold War just as we wound down the war against fascism. The Soviets took the Eastern Bloc and the Balkans, as well as North Korea, North Vietnam, and some other territories, while the West got the rest. From then on out, the Red Scare was kicking off, and the House on Un-American Activity Committee, Witch Hunt, stripping all suspected people with socialist sympathies of any form of government job or union leadership, and thanks to Stalin's brutality and new nations popping up, in the Stalinist model, just like with the anarchists, they began to crush all knowledge of Marxism and American communists, all had to go underground and keep their mouths shut if they ever wanted a job. This Red Scare also helped damage unions with the Taft-Hartley Act, turning them from a force for worker liberation to a toothless bureaucracy that just worked to keep people from getting fired. In a side note, the PRO Act that is currently in Congress and is sitting in the Senate reverses much of Taft-Hartley, which would allow unions to act like they do in the rest of the world, as opposed to what they do in America, which is a broken system. In the final years of his leadership, Stalin presided over the post-war reconstruction of the Soviet Union as well as the development of a Soviet atomic bomb in 1949. 
He even required soldiers returning from the front to have to go through processing camps to see if they held any anti-Stalin feelings, of which nearly 1.25 million were sent to the gulags in the Balkans and not allowed to return home from fighting. At that point, almost 3% of Soviet citizens lived in prisons or the gulag, compared to 0.7% of Americans, the second highest prison population in the world at this point after North Korea. During these years, the country experienced another major famine thanks to a mix of war, destruction of infrastructure, and because he was still enamored with Lysenkoism, and there was an anti-Semitic campaign that culminated in the doctor's plot. This was a fake charge claiming that there was a league of Moscow doctors trying to kill Soviet leaders. They stoked anti-Semitism as Stalin always needed a scapegoat to distract people from what he was doing. Many lost their jobs, had forced confessions through torture, and entire swaths of Jews were slated to be sent to the gulags, basically new ethnic cleansings. Luckily, his health started to decline from 1946 and finally and suddenly died in 1952. After some confusion, Nikita Khrushchev was named his successor and he slowed and then stopped the Stalinist madness, releasing most prisoners and began to implement de-Stalinization. At the 20th Party Congress, Khrushchev apologized for their actions under Stalin and denounced these actions as well as cults of personality. Interestingly, the same would happen to Mao in the 1970s. For the rest of the Soviet Union, Stalin was looked at as a dark and terrible force who did only one good thing as a leader, and that was to stop the Nazi advance and win World War II. And even that is now believed to be a myth, as for the first two months of Hitler's advance into Russia, Stalin vanished for two months, leaving only Molotov to be the spokesperson, and he claimed that fighting back against Hitler would destroy their peace agreement, even though Hitler had already used the peace agreement as toilet paper and was advancing with little resistance to Russia. It turns out it was the local Soviets that put their lives on the line that ended up giving the nation the breathing room it needed to organize themselves to fight back the Nazis. Stalin didn't get a resurrected mythologizing until Putin held him up as a strong leader for political gain long after many had died or forgotten the horrors. While Lenin-style elections were not restored, free speech and disagreement, especially among politicians, were heavily opened up. As with all the famines, it was a fear of reprisals and disagreements that ended up killing the most people. At this point, the damage was done. In the West, communism and Marxism became synonymous with Stalinism, and most other communist powers were Stalinist. We will briefly discuss as many as possible. The parallels between Robespierre with liberal republicanism and Stalin and communism are so ridiculously clear, and just like with the Jacobins, liberal republicanism was linked with dictatorships for the next 70 years. Probably the only reason it didn't take as long to recover as communism is because they had the luck of having another liberal republic in place prior, and that's the USA, which was nicely far away from Europe, so they didn't have nearly the influence. Had another version of communism been implemented that followed Marxism and egalitarianism at the same time as the USSR, the chances of it having such a bad rap, or if Stalin never came to power and Trotsky taken over, the word communism wouldn't send that chill of fear down our spines. Stalin showed not the horrors of communism, but the dangers of letting any one person have too much power. The more concentrated the power, the more terrible it will become. The myth of the benevolent dictator is just that, a myth. His impacts echoed across all governments he touched, turning these growing nations working on creating bottom-up democracy into hulking, unwieldy dinosaurs that were kind of doomed to crash in the long run. 
In many cases, though, we have to keep in mind that dictators running on capitalism with equal imbalances of power sharing have also done equal horrors, including Mubuntu Sesiseko of the Congo, whose atrocities were terrible, but he was anti-communist, so we helped him after killing his predecessor because he dared ask the Soviet Union for military help. Most of them came out of even worse brutality and poverty of colonialism or monarchism, and this was actually a step up for many of them. Sadly, other than a handful, most of them came to power under Stalin and became became little terrible sequels of Stalinist Russia, which is why pretty much the majority of communist nations have been terrible and violent. We'll talk about a few that weren't, but that was post-Stalin. Stalinism in most other communist nations were alive and well until they had their own reckoning. In the case of North Korea, is from certain sources de-Stalinizing slightly, as of the Kim family, Kim Jong-il took the cult of personality to a nationwide religion of personality. It was from this that the distinction between socialism and communist was born, and why owning the term socialism after a decade of red-baiting has worked with people like Bernie and AOC, even though it's really just boring European social democracy. Communism is still a taboo term because it's still considered equal to Stalinism. Maybe someday, like socialism, the stigma and fear will decline from it, but thanks to Stalin, that word is ruined for most of the world for the time being. To be honest, it's really hard to discover the truth about socialism, communism, and anarchism. Both the capitalists and the communists use propaganda, each biased in favor of their side and very uncharitable to the other side, often not representing them or their arguments as the other side sees it. Pretty much always a straw man. If I have said anything that you can debunk, please let me know, and if it's dramatic enough, I will upload a new video to cover it. So as always, thank you all for watching this as a video or listening to this as a podcast, which I'm sure was completely uncontroversial to anyone, especially to the YouTube monetization team. So if you found this useful, please donate to my Patreon. Just a reminder that I'm Anubis2814 on YouTube, and I have almost 700 videos on my channel that I've made over the past 11 years on religion, science, psychology, and politics. Please go check them out, and if your site has the option, like, rate, review, and comment. A special thanks goes out to Kendall Copperberg, Ogrel, Elias Garcia Guevara, and Joe Taylor for their $10 or more Wapawet level donations. I'm always humbled by the fact that they find my work worth funding and worth driving me forward. Thank you all. Please consider donating to my work if you can, and thank you all for listening.